I would direct your attention to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. We will be considering verses 45 through 54 in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. This is the word of our God. Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying thou reproachest us also. And he said, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly you, ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe unto you, lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things. Laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Blessed God and Father, Lord, we come to this section of Scripture today. And Lord, we pray for humble hearts, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would remove the power of our fleshly desires, of our human traditions. Lord, remove all that which would cause us to stumble and not hear and understand this word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be among us to teach us. Lord, please make it clear and simple to our hearts that we may glorify the Son, Jesus Christ, by obeying his word. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen. So the context of this section of Luke's gospel is that Jesus was dining in the, in the house of a Pharisee. And he was noticed for not washing his hands in the proper ceremonial way. And he calls the Pharisees fools and pronounces woes on them. But there were also some lawyers there. We're going to learn about lawyers today in the New Testament, not attorneys as we would think of them today. This is a different kind of lawyer. 
Before that, though, there is a wonderful passage in Scripture in Ephesians chapter 4. And if you would, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Just a few months ago, we we got quite in the habit of turning to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, but let's look at verses 10 and following. Listen to God's word. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is what teachers are supposed to do. That's what the teachers that Jesus provides to his church are supposed to do. They're supposed to perfect or equip the saints for the work of ministry and build up the body of Christ as they teach them the understanding and give them the right sense of the word of God. And Paul gives the reason for this. If you go down to verse 14, still here in Ephesians 4, look at verses 14 through 15, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Pastor teachers are provided to the church by the Lord for the purpose of bringing unity among God's people around the truth and the faith that is given to us in Scripture. God has given good good teachers to his church in every age of redemptive history. In every age of the church, there have been some who were good teachers. In the Old Testament, there were priests and Levites who taught the Old Testament Scriptures to the people. They would read it to them, and then they would teach them what it meant. In the book of Nehemiah, when the walls around Jerusalem were completed by those exiles that came back with Nehemiah. And a crowd of people assembled in the open square in front of the water gate. Ezra, the scribe and priest, brought the book of the law of Moses and read it to the people. And this is in Nehemiah chapter 8. If you like, you can turn over there. Nehemiah chapter 8. It's a great passage. The priests, the scribes, the Levites taught the Bible to the people correctly in that great passage. In Nehemiah 8 and verse 8, it says, So they read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. So they read distinctly from the book of the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading, it says. That is what a teacher is supposed to do. They're supposed to read the scripture, give the sense, and then help the people to understand what it means, what they read. This is what all teachers are supposed to do. They're to study scripture with great care and caution and thoroughness. 
This is so that they can teach it accurately to the people who listen to them. In Nehemiah, there was a great spirit of repentance among God's people. These exiles who were allowed to return to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity to rebuild the wall and then celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles together. They confessed their sins and they lamented their sins. They wept while the law was being read and they said, We have sinned and so have our fathers against this law. We want to do what is right now. And they were taught the law of Moses afresh so that it might point them to Christ. And in our passage here in Luke chapter 11, Jesus turns from the Pharisees to the lawyers. Lawyers were members of a very learned profession, dedicated to the detailed study of the Old Testament law. That's why they were called lawyers. Some of the lawyers were also Pharisees. You had Pharisees who were also part of that scholarly group. Being a lawyer simply meant that you were supposed to be a scholar of all the details of the law. So they were members of this learned scholarly profession. That's what lawyers were. Pharisees were more members of a a religious party. Jesus spent more time speaking to these lawyers, to these scribes and Pharisees, than he did to the Sadducees. Have you ever noticed that? Why is that? He talked a lot more to the Pharisees and the lawyers and scribes than he ever did the Sadducees. And the reason for that is that the Sadducees were the liberals in that time. They didn't believe the Bible. The Pharisees, however, the lawyers, the scribes, they were conservatives, comparatively speaking. And that they did believe the Old Testament was truly God's word. They did believe that one day Messiah would come, and they did believe that there would be a final judgment and either a good or bad afterlife, eternal judgment or eternal salvation, awaited everyone. Just like today, however, there are many people who do not believe the Bible is God's word. They know a lot about it, but they don't teach it accurately. When I was in Bible college, and taking some of the seminary classes. We had to read a lot of guys like this. I remember we had to read works by Charles Finney, for example. And he was one of the most glow-in-the-dark heretics the church has ever seen. And yet, when he explained the gospel, if you can believe this, he got it exactly right. The problem was he didn't believe it. He did understand it, he just did not believe it. Many of the liberals, many of the neo-Orthodox, they did understand the Bible. They just didn't believe it. Now sometimes this was on purpose. And other times, it's simply because the person teaching is unregenerate and blind. And so, that's why they don't understand the Bible. Jesus gives godly and faithful teachers to his church to help teach and lead and establish his blood-bought sheep in the faith. That's the purpose of what pastor teachers in the church do. They are given to ensure that you understand the Bible and that you be established in the gospel and in the faith. But sheep themselves 
must also be discerning. Christ's sheep are not called just to take the word of the shepherds over them. In fact, I would advise you not to do that. No human teacher of Scripture is infallible, nor are they always right about everything. This is perhaps one of the most remarkable things about the Christian church. It is led by God's design by elders chosen by their congregations. But those elders who are tasked with preaching and teaching the Scriptures, while they always have the best of intentions, hopefully they have the best of intentions, are themselves in need of instruction at times and can be wrong. I've been encouraged and shaken by comments I've heard from R.C. Sproul over the years. Sproul has long been one of my heroes in the faith, and he was one of those men that God used to bring me to the doctrines of grace. And I can remember him saying in one of those many teaching series that he did for Ligonier, that he shudders to think how many times by his teaching he has led people to believe things that are actually untrue. Not essentials about the heart and soul of the faith, but nevertheless important things that are revealed in Scripture. He said, I shudder to think how many times through my efforts have people been led astray on some of these secondary matters of the faith. And there are many secondary matters on which I and you would disagree with R.C. Sproul. Infant baptism, presbyteries, covenant theology, just to name a few. But God uses fallen, fallible men to teach his infallible and perfect word to his people. Any good teacher of Scripture would want to know if they are wrong about something. And they would be open to correction from Scripture from such things. Here in our passage... However, Jesus says what is probably the worst possible thing that he could ever say about a teacher. And it's in verse 52 in Luke 11. And I want to start at the end of this passage, and we'll go back to the beginning of it in a few moments. But I just want you to notice what he says here. Luke 11:52. Woe unto you lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge... Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. For men held in high regard by all of the people and held in regard, high regard by each other, this was an insulting statement, probably as insulting as you could imagine. Jesus tells them that they have taken away the key of knowledge. Now these guys... They probably knew most of the Old Testament from memory. And he tells them, you have taken away the key of knowledge that unlocks the meaning of Scripture so the people of God can truly know God. It was taken away by the lawyers, by the greatest living scholars of all the details of the Bible. They took away the people's understanding. These who were the most knowledgeable and had an effect, closed the Bible to everyone they presumed to teach. People could not understand Scripture after listening to them. And the word that is translated key here in this passage, in the key of knowledge, it's just the normal word for key. Something that unlocks a lock, like a key that unlocks a door or a treasure chest. Teachers are supposed to be like well-trained locksmiths, one commentator wrote. 
According to Thomas Watson, the Jewish teachers of the law had a key formally given to them when they were ordained or set apart for the office of teaching. So when they formally began their teaching ministry, they got a key reminding them and their learners that they had the responsibility to unlock the Scriptures, to teach God's Word plainly and helpfully to the people of the Lord. Now do not misunderstand. It's not that the Bible is confusing or too profound that nobody understands it, but everybody needs help. Everyone needs help from teachers. Everyone needs help from good theologians who have studied the Word of God and have given themselves to its proper explication and application. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8? What was he reading from? Remember, he's sitting in a chariot. And if you would, please turn over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. What was he reading from? He's sitting in the chariot and he's reading from Isaiah 53. What an amazing moment this is. Listen to the narrative from Acts chapter 8 and verse 27. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure. Now this was somebody, this eunuch. This guy was an important man. And it goes on and says, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. So this eunuch, a government official with great power under the Queen Candace, he had somehow come in contact with the Jewish people. He had been in contact with the Old Testament law, and he had probably been there for the the Feast of Passover. Verse 28, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah or Isaiah the prophet. You know, Isaiah is often called by biblical scholars the fifth gospel because a lot of times you can't even tell if you're reading the Old Testament in Isaiah. It's so obviously about the Lord Jesus. And then the word of God continues. Then the spirit said unto Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Esaias and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I accept some man guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth. And began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Isn't that glorious? He gave the eunuch the key of knowledge. It's about the coming of the Messiah. And in fact, he just got through doing this. 
This prophecy that you read here, Mr. Ethiopian eunuch, this just happened. Teachers of Scripture are to be the doormen to the Word of God. They hold the key to unlock the treasure chest so others can understand it more clearly. There's nothing more satisfying to a good teacher than to know that his hearers understand the passage better than they did before. Here's an example. For years, I had read the New Testament through, and I didn't understand, nor did I believe, in the doctrine of predestination or of God's unconditional election of his people to eternal life. I just didn't believe that. Then I read four books, Grace Unknown by R.C. Sproul. Anyone here read that? It was re-released under the title, What is Reformed Theology? It's a very good book. I highly recommend it for those who are new to the doctrines of grace. The next one was All of Grace by C.H. Spurgeon, a magnificent work. The third one was The Bondage of, of the Will by Martin Luther, which was written a written debate between Luther and the Roman Catholic priest Desiderius Erasmus over the sovereignty of divine grace. And the fourth was The Potter's Freedom by James White, a work that masterfully answered Arminian and synergistic proof texting point by point. And then I reread the New Testament again and wondered, how did I miss all this? How did I miss out on this? How did I not see that? It's on every other page. How could I have read John's gospel and not noticed that God has an elect people? How could I have read Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 and John 6 and John 10 and John 17, etc., and not see this? Those good teachers gave me the key to open the Word of God. Why do people still read John Calvin? but they don't read Karl Barth, and they don't read Rudolf Boltmann, and they don't read Paul Tillich. If you've never heard of those three guys, give praise to God that you haven't. Paul Tillich's systematic theology is over a 1,000 pages long, and you know how many Bible verses he cites in that over 1,000-page long tome? Three. Three. Three Bible verses in a systematic theology. It's good for starting fires, one, one pastor wrote. It's good kindling. People still read Calvin because he gave and gives people the key to understand Scripture. And those other men, they, they threw away the key so that nobody else could find it again and again. But I would recommend that you read John Calvin's commentaries on the Bible. What he could do in one paragraph, it takes other people ten pages to do. It's, it's unbelievably insightful. Why do people still read Martin Luther over 500 years later? Why do we still read Matthew Henry? Why do we still read Spurgeon's works and sermons? Because, as one pastor wrote, they devoted themselves and their considerable talents and their gifts to making Scripture accessible to people and understandable to people. There is a huge difference between people who seem to know what they are talking about and people who actually know what they're talking about. But those men and their great works on theology and the Bible have stood the test of time. How can we tell the difference, though? 
How can we tell the difference between someone who knows what they're talking about and someone who only appears to be profound but is not? One will walk through a passage and explain it in a way that is consistent with itself and the rest of the Bible, and others will not. These lawyers, the Pharisees and scribes, they were famous, or I should say infamous, for their convoluted interpretations of Scripture, especially concerning the details of the law. Their added traditions made it nearly impossible for anyone really to believe that they had even understood the law of God, let alone that they could obey it. The Lord Jesus told the lawyers, you have not entered God's kingdom and you are hindering others who wanted to enter that kingdom. A.T. Robertson solemnly remarks about this in his word pictures. It is the most pitiful picture imaginable of blind ecclesiastics trying to keep others as blind as they were. Blind leaders of the blind, both falling into the pit. They were lost. And the people they taught were lost because they believed their teachings. That word translated hindered in our text. It means prevent or forbid. The term means to prevent a person from doing something. People who were wanting to enter the kingdom of God were being prevented from doing so by the very people who were supposed to help them enter. What an insult this was to hear this. The lawyers recognized this immediately in Jesus' words. Let's go back to the beginning when he was rebuking the Pharisees. Look at verse 45 in Luke 11. One of these lawyers said to him, Master, thus saying, thou reproachest us also. In more modern English, we might render this, Teacher, by saying these things, you insult us also. Now, that term translated reproachest or insult, it's a fairly strong word. This is how the BDAG lexicon defines it. To treat in an insolent or spiteful manner, mistreat, scoff at, or insult. You have to love Jesus in this next verse. Well, let me tell you exactly how I'm insulting you, basically, he says. It's not clearly, it's not clear exactly what he had said to the Pharisees that made the lawyer suddenly realize, hey, he's talking about us. Well, the reason they thought that is they tended to agree with the Pharisees on everything they did. In fact, the Pharisees got most of their weird understandings from these lawyers and vice versa. They fed each other. All the elaborate tithing on mint and rue and cumin and every kind of garden herb was something they did too. They taught the Pharisees those things. They were probably advocates of ceremonial hand washing that Jesus ignored by simply not doing it before he sat down to eat in a Pharisee's home. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. He's telling them that they are full of ravening and wickedness. He tells them that they were predators who preyed on people and robbed them. He tells them that they are fools for not realizing that the same God that made your physical hands also made your souls. And we know that the heart is full of wickedness. 
that you're enslaved to sin. He charged them with neglecting justice and the love of God, and he rebuked their love of the best seats and the best greetings in the marketplaces and those religious titles. And he told them that they themselves were like concealed tombs that defiled everyone who accidentally walked over them. Very strong words. The lawyers, they were on the side of the Pharisees on all of those issues. Therefore, they said, hey, you're insulting us too by this. And this was a mistake on their part because Jesus immediately turns and tells them the truth about their spiritual condition. Look at verse 46. And he said, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. When legalism and law are the only message that people teach and preach, there will be no transformation at all in people's lives. Legalism and law as the essence of religion produces only two results. First, Pharisees who think they're actually pulling it off or doing it. Or, two, the overwhelmed, depressed types like Martin Luther who know that they're lost in despair. That was Martin Luther's case before he was converted. Those are not good results to one's message if you're a teacher. Both are devastating to human beings. Lawyers with their intricate systems of interpretation and complex superstructures and of add-ons to God's law left people with burdens hard to bear, which the lawyers would not touch with one of their fingers, Jesus said. While the law of Moses was indeed a gift, you need to understand, it has no life-transforming power in it. There is no enabling power within it. It only works wrath in the lives of people. It reflects God's holiness. And as such, it is entirely unattainable by fallen sinners, even redeemed sinners. We fall short and are always falling short of God's standard in the law in the sense of satisfying its righteous demands. Now, you can describe someone that they are a godly person. This person is morally upright. Remember the way that Luke describes Zacharias and Elizabeth? They were blameless, walking in God's commandments, it says in chapter 1, verse 6. That is talking about general moral godliness, general moral uprightness. But the other sense that that term is used is forensic. Forensic legal righteousness before God's law in the sense of satisfying its demands. And that's what nobody can do. These traditions of the elders, like the the hand-washing ceremony, along with the rabbinical interpretations that made the law unintelligible to some people and made it sound easy to others. People with soft consciences likely felt overwhelmed That's what Jesus is talking about. You lawyers, you're killing my sheep. You're making them think that they must do all of this other nonsense. You're totally missing the point of everything in the law. You're laying these huge burdens on them. Stop doing that. Woe to you for it. People with soft consciences probably felt overwhelmed by these interpretations and teachings of the Pharisees and lawyers. 
They probably read the Bible themselves in some cases or, or heard it read in the synagogue and wondered, how in the world am I supposed to know all of that from reading the passage? But the self-assured and the self-righteous probably checked off the easier things, the list of things that they had to do as far as washing and tithing on your spice rack and everything else. They were content with the outward righteousness. That's why Christ's Sermon on the Mount would have been such a shocker to people. He takes Moses and raises him to the highest level. You think this only forbids outward murder if you hate somebody? You hate somebody without cause, you're already guilty of murder. You think that this only prohibits physical outward adultery and you can do whatever you want in your mind? This extends to your motives and everything else about you. The law requires far more than mere outward conformity. But inward conformity of thoughts, wishes, desires, and motives. And if you don't understand that that condemns all of us, then you're blind and you're lost. For all of the non-physical murderers and all the non-physical adulterers, what Jesus had to say was not good news. But for the people with sensitive consciences who mourn over their sin, who have been transformed by the grace of the Holy Spirit of God. Lawyers and Pharisees, they added so much to Scripture that it was a burden so heavy no one could ever carry it. And the image that Jesus uses is of someone carrying something that is unbearably heavy. Have you ever done that before? Carry something unbearably heavy? Maybe you've been helping somebody move, and they're moving, you're helping them move into their house, and they've got something like a, an 800-pound gun safe. And I didn't know they made things that big until <laughs> you actually have to help somebody move one. But it would be like two guys on one end who are absolutely breaking their backs. And I'm just standing in the middle with my finger under it saying, yeah, great job, guys. You're doing great. Jesus says, but you lawyers don't even do that. You won't even put out a finger to help those poor people. You shackle them down with something no one can carry. And you want even you won't even try to help them. Leon Morris, in his commentary on Luke, describes some of the laws of the lawyers. Listen to this. And here, here Morris is quoting from the Jewish Talmud. On the Sabbath, they taught, a man may not carry a burden in his right hand or in his left hand, in his bosom or on his shoulder, but he may carry it on the back of his hand or with his foot, or with his mouth, or with his elbow, or in his ear, in his hair, or in his wallet, carried mouth downwards, or between his wallet and his shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe, or in his sandal. So this, this creates some pretty weird images of trying to carry things with your elbows and the back of your hands in your mouth or in, in your ear? What exactly can you carry in your ear or in your hair? You could carry your wallet, 
on the Sabbath, but you had to turn it upside down, mouth downward. Maybe that was so that they could steal the money that came out of it. I'm not sure. I would encourage you not to do that. You'll lose the contents of your wallet if you carry it like that, most likely. Morris goes on. Multiply this by all the regulations of the law, and ordinary people have a burden beyond bearing, even to know what they might do and might not do. But there is also a multitude of loopholes for a lawyer who knew the traditions which enabled him to do pretty well what he pleased. So the experts of the law, they knew how to get around everything. You remember, you weren't allowed to walk more than a certain number of feet on the Sabbath. So what these Pharisees and lawyers would do is that they would take a board from their house and set them up at 1,000 feet intervals so that technically their house was there. And they would touch the board. And they went to another board and touched that one. These were the kind of silly things they taught God's people. We chuckle about it because it's so absurd, but people were being led to believe that this was what God expected of them. And Jesus says, you're in big trouble for that. How dare you tell them that? You are taking away the key of knowledge. These were the things imposed by these lawyers on people, and they were utterly indifferent to the suffering that it caused among the people. What a contrast that is. These, these burdens that were laid on people by false teachers, by these Pharisees and lawyers, these burdens that no one could carry. But listen to Matthew chapter 11 and verses 28 through 30. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus about how he contrasts himself with these that would burden down and laden people with burdens they couldn't carry. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The reason the lawyers and the Pharisees lack spiritual life was the same as why they lack it today. They are dead in their transgressions and sins. They are enslaved to sin and happy to be so. They were in the flesh and thus they cannot please God as Romans chapter 8 says, as we, as we read earlier. They are not able to come to Christ because they're not able to understand the things of the Spirit. They're not able to bear good fruit because they were bad trees, as Jesus would say. In effect, the lawyers and the Pharisees are great examples of what all of us in this room would be without the sovereign, effectual regeneration of the Holy Spirit of God. This is what we would be. We can stand here and condemn them, but this is exactly what we would be like if God had not opened our eyes and had mercy on us. Sadly, the practice of ungodly teachers to bind burdens upon their learners did not end with the lawyers and the Pharisees. God's people had been plagued throughout the last 2,000 years of the church by false teachers. 
and even misguided, otherwise godly teachers who by their human traditions loaded heavy burdens on those trying to enter the kingdom of God, taking away the key of knowledge and hindering God's elect. Probably one of the the starkest and saddest examples of this was the Roman Catholic Church's locking up of Scripture instead of unlocking it. You've probably heard or read about the Bible being chained to the pulpit during the Dark Ages. While it is true that this happened, the lay people, the common folk, they were allowed to read the Bible by themselves, but they just had to read it in Latin, the ecclesiastical language, a dead language that only scholars used. Only these high teachers who, who were content with the key of knowledge being hidden from the common people. The Roman authorities would not allow the scriptures to be translated into the common language of the people. This was the cause of William Tyndale in England to provide a translation of God's word that would be read and understood by the plowboy, the most common folk. In 1536, he was convicted of heresy and executed by strangulation, and his dead body was burned at the stake for translating the scriptures into English. For he was murdered before he could translate the whole Bible into the common language of his countrymen. He was killed by the authorities for not withholding the key of knowledge as they were doing the blood-bought legacy of his work that we now hold in our hands in the translations of the scriptures into our common tongue, may we not squander this key of knowledge purchased at such a high cost for the sake of human tradition. Look at verses 47 and 48 in Luke 11. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Sepulchres here, it means tombs or graves. So this is a cemetery scene. These lawyers and Pharisees, they would decorate and adorn the tombs of the prophets because they were the authors of Scripture that they claimed to to know and love. They claimed not to be evil like their fathers who had killed those prophets. But listen, the fact that these lawyers and Pharisees rejected Jesus, the one foretold by those prophets whose tombs they adored, showed that they did not believe those prophets that they were of the same spirit as their fathers who had killed the prophets. They were just like them. Their rejection of Christ proved that. And soon they would kill the Lord Jesus himself. They had the same contempt for the truth that their sinful forefathers had. If they had really loved and followed God's prophets, whose tombs they decorated and celebrated and adored and adorned, why didn't they believe what they wrote? 
They claimed to love these prophets. Why didn't they believe about the Savior being spoken of in their prophecies? Why didn't they believe in the Messiah about whom those men had written? Why were they plotting against him and seeking to kill him, even though he did miracles in their presence and taught as no one ever had? Why did they attribute his mighty miracles to Satan? If they were so different from their fathers who had killed the prophets, why were they desiring to kill God's only son and ultimate final prophet? Verses 49 through 51. Therefore, also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. And here Jesus foretells that after his resurrection, prophets and apostles would be sent to those same people, to these lawyers, to these Pharisees, and they're going to persecute and kill them too. Jesus was going to the cross to die for his people, be buried and rise again, and then commission his apostles to go out into the world and preach the gospel. And despite all the signs and wonders and the great, greatest miracle of all, the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead, remember, the Pharisees paid Roman soldiers to lie about that these same religious leaders would do everything in their power to murder those prophets and apostles just like they did Jesus. Verse 50 says that the blood of all the prophets, the blood of all the prophets from Abel, the very first child born in this world, the very first martyr for the cause of God, his blood all the way up to the prophet Zechariah, would be charged by God against that generation of Jews. Everything is building to this calamitous judgment because Jerusalem, because uh, calamitous judgment against Jerusalem that will come before that generation passes away. And, and you see this building throughout Luke's gospel, especially after you get to chapter 9. It, it just builds and builds the parables, Jesus, the parables of Jesus, the discourses against primarily the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And then you're finally going to get to the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21, where he describes the most calamitous and the most horrific judgment imaginable. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 34. Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled that generation of Israel would finally be judged by Christ in the year A.D. 70. When Rome would surround and siege Jerusalem, there would be a final battle which would be so horrific that the descriptions of it found in the works of the Jewish historian Josephus are difficult to read. If you have access to Josephus or access to Philip Schaff in his history of the church, he quotes from Josephus, who was an eyewitness of it, Jewish fighters fighting on the tops of piles of dead bodies. 
against Romans, all the way to the last man in the precincts of the temple, trying to guard the temple. The Roman soldiers had been commanded not to burn down the temple. Not to burn down the temple. But they were so angry at how stubborn the Jews were, so angry at how many of them had died in trying to take that city, that they said, forget it. We're burning the whole thing. They set the whole place on fire. And because of that, the blaze would end up melting the gold in the rafters of the temple. And it would trickle down into the cracks of all the stones. And when the fires died down and everything had cooled off, in order to get every last bit of gold, the Romans had to dismantle every single stone from off of the other thus fulfilling in frightening accuracy what Jesus says in Matthew 24 and verse 2. When they're standing on the Mount of Olives and the disciples say, look at all these awesome buildings, Jesus. He says, see ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus asks his disciples, do you not see all of these things? You see this marvelous temple that is the envy of the world? Then he drops an eschatological bomb on them. Truly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here on another that shall not be thrown down. Isn't that frightening? It's one thing to read it. 2,000 years later in the comfort of our modern life. But imagine being one of Christ's Jewish disciples for whom the temple represented the center of religious life. It had to be jarring. It had to be extremely frightening. The last time the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed, the Israelites were taken away in the Babylonian captivity, and they lost their lands and their families and their nation What would happen in 70 A.D. would be even worse than that, according to Jesus. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. He says that later in Matthew 24, verses 21 through 22. Frightening indeed. Now, unbelievers for centuries said that that had to be written after A.D. 70 because of its incredible accuracy. And we all know that there's no God who can prophesy, but we know better, don't we? The one who decreed the future and holds it in his sovereign and all-powerful hands, he has no trouble prophesying this to us. But the judgment would be horrendous, and it would be God's final answer to all the blood that had been shed on earth. He says, from Abel to the prophet Zechariah. And although there were martyrs after the prophet Zechariah, Jesus uses these two as bookends. The reason is, Abel to Zechariah, it's because of the way the Jewish people ordered the books of the Old Testament. And it's different than how we do it now. In the Jewish canon, or order of books, the last book was 2 Chronicles, not Malachi. 
And the point of Jesus' words here is that all the righteous blood shed from the beginning of divine revelation in Genesis all the way to the end of Second Chronicles would be charged to that generation of Jews. Cain killed Abel out of jealousy. The Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, the lawyers, they would kill Jesus out of jealousy too. Even Pontius Pilate, he could see that the Pharisees had brought Jesus to him because of envy, because they were jealous of him. The Zechariah that is spoken of here is made clear in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 23, 35. Zacharias, or Zechariah, son of Berechias, or Berechiah, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. And although this man's death is not recorded in the Old Testament, it did take place near the close of the Old Testament in Second Chronicles. And all their deaths would, would be judged upon apostate Israel in A.D. 70. So let's get to the last few verses here. Verse 52. Woe unto you, lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. What a devastating wrecking ball of a statement by our Lord here. They were not able to open the word of God to the people. In fact, they threw away the key of understanding. It's glorious treasures. False teachers are blinded by Satan, but they are blinded by lacking the Holy Spirit. And so they cannot understand or teach Scripture to anyone. No matter how well a scholar has dedicated himself to understanding Scripture, without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they can't understand it. Because they rejected Jesus, the true key to understanding the Old Testament, the Old Testament became meaningless to them. And it became meaningless to the people they taught it to. They had reduced it to a group of traditions and regulations that didn't really hit people in the heart. They ignored the promises of a divine Savior from sin and they turned all of those expectations into a temporal, earthly deliverer from Roman oppression. Even Jesus' disciples thought this way before his resurrection and before their minds were opened to the scriptures which testified about him. Because they were not Christ-centered in their reading of Scripture, the teaching of the lawyers and the Pharisees hindered those who were entering God's kingdom. And that is the harshest rebuke of all that Jesus gives them. It's very important to remember that while Jesus is foretelling and prophesying a very serious and a very frightening judgment that is coming against these men, he is rebuking them out of love. Jesus is showing love to these lawyers. He's showing love to the Pharisees. This was their invitation to abandon their false doctrines. He's telling them how serious this is, that maybe they'll turn away from it and listen and believe the miraculous signs and come to him for salvation. To turn away from the the very things provoking these terrible woes from Christ. And to repudiate and reject their false religious system. 
and to turn to Christ for spiritual life. Sadly, we know the vast majority of them did not do that. The last two verses are very, very sorrowful, very somber and heartbreaking. Verses 53 and 54. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. Wouldn't you have loved it if it had said the scribes and the Pharisees began to to weep and say, what have we done? They tore their robes and cried, what must I do to be saved? It doesn't say that. Instead, they began to urge him vehemently, which could be translated to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Their anger only grew and their aggression and scheming only deepened. They were truly waiting, lying in wait to ambush Jesus, to catch something out of his mouth. The word translated catch is a, is a hunting term in the original language. It refers to someone who sets traps for animals. They wanted to hunt him down and kill him like prey. You remember, he told them earlier, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness, verse 39. Said another way, but inside you, are full of extortion and wickedness. The word translating ravening means they are predatory. They prey upon people. And here, they are like predatory animals preying on Jesus. They wanted him dead. And they were far too comfortable and they enjoyed far too much their places of prestige, their best seats in the synagogues, the elaborate greetings in the marketplaces, their long, ornate robes, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. They were in love with these religious perks, and they had turned their hearts completely away from the true God. And because of this, Jesus is annoying to them. He's annoying to them. He gets on their nerves. Nothing else. They tried and they tried and they tried to trip him up and to catch him and to pounce on him for something he might say, but they couldn't. And eventually, they resort to the oldest method in the book, lying. If we can't catch him in something he actually says, let's just lie about him. They tried to bring false witnesses against him to testify lies against him. You remember? Matthew chapter 26 and 59. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. They couldn't find anything real against Jesus. 
So they just tried another form of lying called equivocation. Take something he did say and give it a completely different meaning. That's the same as lying. By his statement, Jesus was referring to the temple of his body when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. It was a false accusation because the people who heard Jesus say that thought that he meant the literal physical temple that he was standing in front of when he said it. Nevertheless, eventually they were able to orchestrate his death. But we all know Jesus was in control of that the whole time. What looks like helplessness is simply God accomplishing his will. What looks like failure turns out to be the greatest success. What looks like foolishness, Jesus nailed to a cross and is the power and wisdom of Almighty God and the salvation of his beloved people. And that takes us full circle. Teachers of God's word in the gospel are to give people the key of knowledge. Not to bedazzle them with scholarly argumentation. Not to bedazzle them with confusing things that sound deep and sound profound. They're supposed to give the key to unlock the treasures of the scriptures. They're given by our glorious Lord Jesus to help, not to hinder people going to heaven. But woe to any person who in the name of being a teacher takes away the key of knowledge and hides the true gospel from people or hides the true gospel under ambiguity. Woe to anyone who hinders people from entering Christ's kingdom. Woe to anyone who does not have spiritual eyes and spiritual ears given to them by the Holy Spirit so that the light of the glory of the gospel would shine upon them and shine through them upon others. That's what teachers are supposed to do. That's what experts in Scripture are supposed to do, to give the key of knowledge, to unlock the Word of God so people can believe and be saved and have eternal life. And woe to anyone who is a hindrance to that by their teaching. As we close, I want to leave you with some words of another great teacher of the Christian faith who freely gave the key of knowledge, Jonathan Edwards. He wrote a treatise entitled, in true Puritanesque style, Some Thoughts Concerning the Present Revival of Religion in New England and the Way in Which It Ought to Be Acknowledged and Promoted. Pretty long title. He wrote it during the Great Awakening, that great move of God's spirit among the American colonists from the 1730s to the 1770s. As we continue to hunger and pray earnestly for revival in our time, I think we do well to heed Edward's solemn warnings here. We are who are in this sacred office, had need take heed what we do and how we behave ourselves at this time. A less thing in a minister will hinder the work of God than in others. If we are very silent or say but little about the work in our public prayers and preaching or seem carefully to avoid speaking of it in our conversation, it will be interpreted by our people 
that we, who are their guides, to whom they have their eye for spiritual instruction, are suspicious of it. And this will tend to raise the same suspicions in them. And so the forementioned consequences will follow. And if we really hinder and stand in the way of the work of God, whose business above all others is to promote it, how can we expect to partake of the glorious benefits of it? And by keeping others from the benefit, we shall keep them out of heaven. Therefore, those awful words of Christ to the Jewish teachers should be considered by us. Matthew 23:13. Woe unto you, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. If we keep the sheep from their pasture, how shall we answer it to the great shepherd who has bought the flock with his precious blood and has committed the care of them to us? I would humbly desire of every minister that has long remained disaffected to this work and has had contemptible thoughts of it to consider whether he has not hitherto been like Michal without any child, or at least in a great measure barren and unsuccessful in his work. I pray God it may not be a perpetual barrenness as hers was. Brothers and sisters, we must examine ourselves. We must ensure that we are not withholding the key of knowledge. God has placed us in different contexts and in different relationships with people in which sometimes we are teachers, we must not hold back the key of knowledge. We must not let the weight of human tradition and our own desires cause us to not unlock the scriptures. May God help us. Let's pray. Blessed God and Father, thank you, Lord. For your word. Thank you, Lord, for working in our hearts by using your word, Lord, to transform us into the image of Christ. Lord, you have put the new man within us. Lord, let, let us walk in his ways. Let us put away sin. Let us put away human tradition. Let us put away all the things that hinder those entering into the kingdom of God. Make us faithful ministers of your gospel, Lord. Make us faithful teachers. Humble us, Lord. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.